Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 310. It's titled, Why the Stock Market and Economy Are Rebounding So Quickly. Last week, Laprell and I and our daughter drove 20 miles from our house to hike the Cascade Creek Trail in the southern part of Yellowstone National Park. It went to Terrace Falls along the Fall River. It took about two and a half hours. We saw six people the entire time. But then we decided to take the long way home through Grand Teton National Park. And I was absolutely amazed how many people there are. When we drove past the Jenny Lake Lodge and Visitor Center, the parking lot was full and there were cars parked along the main highway. Dozens and dozens of cars. I have never seen this many campers and RVs in this part of Idaho. In some ways, it doesn't feel like a recession. A recession is an extended period of economic contraction. When the dollar value of goods produced and services provided within an economy, is shrinking. Of course, it especially doesn't feel like a recession given the S&P 500 index, a measure of U.S. stocks, has closed near an all-time high. I talked about that aspect a few episodes ago in an episode titled The Stock Market is Not the Economy. But the economy is also different during this recession than it was during the great financial crisis. We're clearly in a recession. U.S. gross domestic product fell at a 32.9% annual rate in the second quarter, after falling at a 5% annual rate in the first quarter. On June 6, 2020, a committee of the U.S. Bureau of Economic Research officially declared the U.S. was in a recession. In this episode, we're going to explore how this global recession differs from the great financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, and what could develop going forward. There are four major ways that this current pandemic-induced recession differs from the great financial crisis of 2008-2009. The first is this recession was indeed caused by a pandemic lockdown, essentially putting the global economy into a coma in order to try to flatten the curve, the spread, of COVID-19. That contrasts with the great financial crisis, where the recession was really caused by a debt and banking crisis. Heading into the 2001 recession, U.S. total household debt to GDP was 70%, and household mortgage debt to GDP was 47%. Then we had a housing bubble. Total household debt to GDP peaked at 98.1%, in the summer of 2008, an increase of 28 percentage points. Household mortgage debt to GDP peaked at 73% compared to 
compared to 47% six or seven years earlier. Then we had the crisis, and we've had a decade where debt levels have been paid down. At the end of Q1 2020, household debt to GDP was down to 76% compared to its peak of 98%. And mortgage debt to GDP is at 49%, close to where it was in 2001. Households were better prepared as we entered into this recession by having more savings and lower debt levels. Banks were also better prepared. In episode 305, Are Banks Safe?, we explored how banks are much less leveraged and have a much greater capital buffer than they did prior to the great financial crisis. Banks are much better prepared this recession than they were for the great financial crisis. Regulations are more stringent, and so we're not having a debt and banking crisis. A second reason that this recession differs from the great financial crisis is unemployment is disproportionately impacting lower-paid workers now compared to 2009. And because it's lower-paid workers that are being hit the hardest, aggregate income, income across the entire economy, has been much less impacted. In addition, because this was such a sudden shock to the economy, peak unemployment rates have come sooner and recovered faster in 2020 compared to the great financial crisis. From October 2007 to December 2009, U.S. non-farm payrolls fell by 7.5 million jobs. The unemployment rate increased to 10%. But it took over two years to get to that peak. The worst hit industries were construction, where unemployment was 23%, leisure and hospitality at 13%, manufacturing at 11.9%, and professional and business services at 10.3%. It was more broad-based, the unemployment. Most industries and professions were hit. The lowest were government workers, where the unemployment rate peaked at 3.6%, and education and healthcare services the unemployment rate peaked at 5.6%. The most recent U.S. employment report in the U.S. showed an unemployment rate of 10.5%, so about the same as it was in 2009. But we hit the peak unemployment two months ago in April of 14.7%. 22 million jobs were lost, but 9 million have already been recovered as the economy has reopened and some workers have gone back to work. The hospitality and leisure sector accounted for 37% of the 22 million jobs lost. The unemployment rate there was at 39.3% in April. Now it's down to 25%, still the highest unemployment rate. Other sectors that have gotten hit is mining, oil, and gas. With the collapse of the oil price, that unemployment rate is 16%. Transportation and utilities. 14% unemployment rate. And the lowest is financial activities at 4.7%. Now, all sectors have got hit, but it has really hit lower paid workers. A study by Opportunity Insights, this is a joint study by economists at Harvard and Brown Universities, showed that across all workers, as of the end of June, their unemployment rates are up 6.8 percentage points compared to January 2020. But higher wage workers, unemployment is only up 0.5 percent. 
workers that make over $60,000 per year, while those that earn less than $27,000 per year, as of the end of June, their unemployment rate is 15.7 percentage points higher than in January 2020. It's the lower paid workers that are suffering the most unemployment, which makes sense given the 25% unemployment rate in the leisure and hospitality industries where the average hourly wage is just under $17 per hour, including supervisors. If we look at the U.S. Census Bureau's current population survey, they do an income breakdown. The two lowest quintiles make up 40% of the population. The median household income for the lowest quintile was $13,775. And the second quintile, the median household income is $37,293. That's 40% of the U.S. population. But they only make up 12.4% of the aggregate income because they're being paid less. So even though unemployment rates are much higher in that segment of the population, the overall income impact, where 60% of the population is making higher wages and earn 87.6% of total household income in the U.S., we can start to see why some of the economic indicators have begun to improve now that those higher paid workers have returned to work. A third driver for why the economy is recovering more quickly is federal governments acted generously and quickly in providing aid. In the U.S., there were one-time economic impact payments of $1,200. There were 159 million recipients of that $1,200 payment. That's $2,400 for married couples and additional $500 for qualifying children. Congress expanded eligibility for unemployment benefits. Workers were able to get an additional $600 a week in benefits through July. A paper by Jehun Han and Bruce Meyer of University of Chicago and James Sullivan of the University of Notre Dame showed that in the U.S., these benefits actually reduce the poverty rate. The official poverty statistics won't be available until September 2021. They looked at the monthly Census Bureau survey and estimated that incomes at the 25th percentile, which means that 75% workers earn more, 25% earn less, went from 46,000 to 51,000 annual income from the start of the year through April and May. And that the poverty rate declined from 10.9% in January to 8.6% in April and May because of these government benefits. Now, that doesn't mean people aren't suffering, particularly when it comes to food security. Households worried about their food supply jumped from 8.5% in February to 23% in late April through mid-May. This is a study by Marianne Bittler of the University of California, Davis, Hilary Hoyness of the University of California, Berkeley, and Diane Schaschenbach of Northwestern University. And they looked at potential holes in the social safety net where some workers aren't eligible for these unemployment benefits or their unemployment benefits were delayed. Schaschenbach said, unemployment increased by more among workers with low levels of education. Families with children lost school meals. 
we also have the biggest increase in food prices in 50 years. That's a perfect storm. Now, the $600 in additional unemployment benefits expired at the end of July. There was disagreements with Congress whether these additional benefits discouraged workers. The Trump administration is planning on adding an extra $300 in weekly payments, pulling money from a federal disaster relief fund. But is it true that these unemployment benefits, where many workers were receiving more in unemployment payments than they were actually earning when they had their job, is that discouraging them from returning to work? And is it encouraging employers to keep the workers away? A study by economists at the Tobin Center for Economic Policy at Yale University published a paper where they looked at this. Their study was based on scheduling and time clock software to small businesses. came from a company called Homebase. And so they looked at this high-frequency data to see if workers receiving these benefits stayed away from work more so than workers that were not receiving the benefits, and that if employers were keeping those workers away. They wrote, we find that the workers who experienced larger increases in unemployment insurance generosity did not experience larger declines in employment when the benefit expansion went into effect. Additionally, we find that workers facing larger expansions in UI benefits have returned to their previous jobs over time at at similar rates as others. We find no evidence that more generous benefits disincentivized work, either at the onset of the expansion or as firms look to return to business over time. A final element that is contributing to a faster recovery both in the economy and financial markets today versus the great financial crisis is central banks have been more aggressive in the response to the crisis. With interest rates cuts, asset purchases, and other programs to avoid a liquidity crisis where investors are just dumping assets in order to raise cash. Those four elements then are contributing to a faster recovery. This time, it hasn't been a debt and banking crisis. It's very much tied to the pandemic. Higher paid workers have returned to work, although many continue to work from home. So most of the economic pain is being felt by those that earn less. And those workers have benefited from federal government programs to assist them. And finally, central banks have been more aggressive. Now what, though? We have these unemployment benefits, to some extent, being cut off. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. 
And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If we look globally at mobility trackers, such as this by Capital Economics, they show that overall movement of people using public transportation, traveling in cars, visiting stores, is about 88% of what it was prior to the crisis. 88% prior to where it was back in early March. Some countries have returned to normal. People are moving around. Italy, Sweden, France. Well, others that continue to be hit hard by the pandemic, such as India and Mexico, are still showing mobility rates of 60 to 70% of what it was prior to the crisis. Most of the economic contraction was due to a collapse in consumption, particularly in services. But now we've seen retail sales rebound sharply. Overall retail sales are higher now across the world than they were back in February. Now, bars and restaurants in the U.S. haven't recovered, but even their sales were up 5% last month. But they remain at only 80% of what they were prior to the pandemic. But if we look at retail sales, if we look at consumption, the recession, if we're measuring it by GDP, is effectively over. Capital economics, for example, expects GDP to rebound for the third quarter by over 25% and consumption to increase by over 30%. We'll still see an overall contraction around the world of probably close to 5% in 2020. The worst is behind us, but there is still a lot of uncertainty. Former Fed Chair Janet Yellen, in an interview in the Washington Post, said the stock market isn't the economy. The economy is production and jobs, and there are shortfalls in virtually every sector of the economy. This pandemic is causing suffering and losses. Individuals and businesses are not going to make it through this unless they get grants, and only the federal government can do that. 
This is the time for the federal government to continue to step up, to assist those that are being hurt the most, but things are rebounding and getting better. It will probably take until 2021 or longer to fully recover the amount of output that was lost. And that doesn't mean that things are going to necessarily go back to normal. I look at how we're living our lives now compared to early March. I've mentioned the precautionary principle. In the face of extreme uncertainty, take preventive action. And we did that. We, most of us sheltered in place. We were afraid to touch the food that got delivered from the grocery store. Now, as we've gotten more data on, let's say, the infection fatality rate, the number of people that die from COVID as a percent of those that were infected, there's still uncertainty around that number. A scientific brief by the World Health Organization from August 4th said most estimates are somewhere between 0.5 and 1%. I saw one study focused just on New York City, looking at data from March 1st to May 16th. They estimated that the infection fatality rate was 1.5%. That's still worrisome, but not so alarming that we stay sheltered in place and never go anywhere especially some of the data that suggests that it's super spreader events that often lead to the virus spreading. I know in our case, we're comfortable doing restaurant takeout. We've eaten outside at restaurants a couple times when there was adequate spacing. We're willing to take brief store visits. We have visited with friends while maintaining social distancing. We're just not as fearful, but we're not back to normal. And if others act that way, that there is an economic impact of that. Well, you see a recovery, but not enough to overcome the hit. Some hope for a vaccine. It looks like we'll get a vaccine. But I read an interesting report by Neil Shearing. He's the chief economist at Capital Economics. He says there are several factors that will determine whether a vaccine will, to what extent it will help the economy. And the first thing is how effective is it? He mentions no vaccine is 100% effective. In the U.S., the FDA targets an efficacy rate of 80%. But for COVID-19, they've lowered the bar. It just has to be 50% effective. Would you take a vaccine that's only 50% effective? That's one of the other uncertainties. Will people actually take it? If it is effective, how long will it be effective? And if you take the vaccine and you still get COVID, does that reduce the severity of the disease? The effectiveness of the vaccine will definitely impact the economy, the willingness of individuals to use it. And then there's the whole distribution aspect. If we get a vaccine, how long before we can get it? Because it needs to be manufactured and distributed. And it might not be until mid to late 2021 before one can actually take the vaccine. That's a long time to continue to maintain social distancing and to be cautious. And that'll have an economic impact. So we're trying to cope and be cautiously optimistic and be willing to take more risk, both in our personal lives and in investments, as we've gotten more data and we get more comfortable. Not back to normal, but things are gradually improving and we're adapting and businesses are adapting. And that's a good thing. That is why this economic recession is very different from anything we've experienced. 
It was a very deep plunge, followed by a fairly quick recovery. Based on what caused it, being a pandemic lockdown, and based on actions by federal governments, central banks, and the unfortunate reality that this has hit lower-income households more, which is why additional aid should be targeted at those lower-income households. That then is episode 310. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide, and I'll email you those links to that week's podcast episode, as well as an essay on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week just goes to your inbox. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>